Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Good morning, I'm Antonia Cattarelli. Uh, I have been working at European Commission for over 20 years now, and uh, I'm teaching at the LUMSA University in Rome. I'm teaching European Affairs, and I'm very happy to be here for this interview on the, about Visegrad Insight. Listen to the full interview with Antonia in the second part of this episode, in which Antonia explains the nature of change in the attitudes of Italians towards the European project under the pandemic. And she goes definitely beyond the most obvious uh, explanations. And also in which we talk about the future of Europe conference and the questions Central Europeans need to ask themselves in order to participate fully in the conference and to shape the discussion on the future of Europe. My name is Wojciech Przybylski, I'm Editor-in-Chief. Let's begin. Welcome back to the Fisigrad Insight podcast. Uh, it's the 4th of May. We're in the afternoon here in the office. My name is Quincy Klut, Managing Editor um, of Fisigrad Insight. And next to me is a, um, a somewhat unfamiliar face, maybe, although um, re regular podcast uh, listeners will have already heard you. Yeah, so my name is Marysia Ciupka, and I'm a junior fellow at Visegrad Insight. Yeah, so together with Marisha, we'll uh, go through some of the stories uh, this week. It's a, it's a new month, month of May, which always means for Visegrad Insight, there's also a forecast um, looking at the main trends uh, for Central and Eastern Europe in the next couple of weeks and also some recent stories and developments. Um, a lot of attention um, obviously goes to the EU recovery funds uh, and the plans which had to sub be submitted uh, at the end of April. April, uh, which uh, most countries, not all, um, did, and in most cases also quite a bit under pressure in, in trying to find uh, uh, as many means possible to, to spend this money. It's yet to be seen uh, how the Commission will uh, evaluate some of these uh, projects, um, but that will be definitely a story we'll be following in the next week. Uh, one interesting story um, I've picked up from, from the monthly foresight is, uh, and also following an article by Spasimir Domaratsky from last week, is uh, what is happening in Bulgaria. So the elections uh, there seem to be uh, scheduled to take place in summer. Uh, we were talking about a per period of uncertainty after the recent parliamentary elections early April, and now it seems that a new, uh, a new electoral vote is uh, pretty much uh, the only outcome, which doesn't necessarily uh, bide well for some of the newer uh, protest parties, um, as this is another chance for the most established parties to to, to try and seize uh, power again. So um, I definitely invite you to, to read uh, Spass' recent article for more background, but also to take a look at the, at the monthly foresight. Um, but let's look maybe at a story now that uh, you, Marisha, have been developing um, in the last couple of days following a, uh, a story uh, or announcement uh, coming from a Polish conservative organization, Ordo Juris. Can you say something about this organization and, and what is the deal there? Sure. So for all those uh, who are familiar with the political, with the Polish political uh, drama scene, uh, Ordo Juris 
would be an organization that they probably would have heard of. It's a legal think tank, uh, legal, as Quincy said, a conservative uh, legal think tank with um, pretty strong influence on politics. And it is the same organization that has lobbied for a complete abortion ban in, um, in the recent years. Uh, and a variety of other legal initiatives, uh, also um, including um, anti-discrimination. Uh, they, they have been opposing anti-discrimination education in schools, for example, related to LGBTQ um, rights. And last week, they have published a petition and a statement um, lobbying for the introduction of uh, transparency um, of foreign-funded NGOs. And this is something for anybody who's been following uh, politics of Putin or Orban in the recent years. This would sound familiar as this is the kind of um, move or um, initiative that um, was the beginning of um, NGO repressions that came later with the so-called foreign agent law. So it's a potential first step uh, which can go in the direction of essentially making any NGO that receives funding, whether it's EU funding or, or from the US, potentially suspect as a, as a foreign agent, uh, essentially an NGO that would try to uh, overturn, let's say, Polish sovereign interests. Uh, that, that's pretty much the image probably they want to create, yes? Yes, so they also appeal to the uh, also very well-known narrative of uh, George Soros uh, or German money-funded uh, NGOs and civil society organizations. The statement uh, basically explains that Polish citizens should be aware of who of what money stands behind what initiative, um, especially that according to them, uh, these initiatives and these civil society organizations have a strong influence on Polish culture and society. So Marisha, two questions to you. Um, one, to what extent, I mean, obviously this is at the stage of a petition. Uh, from what we've seen, the number of people signing up is, is relatively limited. But we do know that Ordo Juris has the ear of, of some conservative po politicians. Um, how, how influential is Ordo Juris in, 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 let's say, conservative ruling coalition circles? But also secondly, I mean, Ordo Juris is also part of a, a larger network of, of internationally speaking conservative organizations. Aren't they also speaking against uh, their own um, situation in a sense? Uh, is, is this strictly also a Polish NGO that doesn't have any sort of international funding? Uh, yes. So answering to your first question, which is basically about how much, how uh, dangerous this petition really is. The problem is that the organization, and this is something that we've seen with, for example, the abortion case, the, the organization itself, if um, they have a motivation and if there's a need for that, definitely has the capacity, the organizational and the capacity and the resources to uh, collect enough signatures to potentially push for the legislation um, 
legislative process of uh, of that uh, of the law. Um, and this is also uh, even more um, significant as already last year. Um, it was in May and then in, again in August. Ministry of Environment and Ministry of Justice already spoke about um, the beginning of works on such, uh, on such law. So this is uh, in that way uh, we can read it as perhaps um, the politicians kind of outsourcing the job of lobbying for that uh, for that legal initiative to Ordo Iuris, mm -hmm. preparing the uh, preparing the necessary groundwork for further works on it. So that's that's uh, that's how it answer that would be my answer to your first question, and then answering to your second question, it is. Um, very, in fact, hypocritical of Ordo Iuris to uh, to chase after foreign-funded NGOs, since itself it is as uh, numerous um, investigations and uh, journalists um, uh, have shown. Uh, it is part of an international network of uh, conservative uh, ultra-Catholic organizations and they have been proven to both receive and uh, send money to organizations all over the world. Uh, and that um, has not been very transparent mm -hmm. either. So, so this is uh, answer to, my, to your second yes, question. Yes, sounds like the politics of uh, hypocrisy here. And uh, yes, you'll have your analysis uh, ready also um, this week uh, for our readers. Uh, just also to remind, uh, so last year we also had a special report on civil society in Central Europe, which also looks in the question of uh, how NGOs are financed and also especially during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, some of them have already felt the difference in, in sort of tax donation scheme and then more limited uh, support which is coming in through through an income tax uh, income tax scheme um, yeah potentially restrictions on foreign funding may make the situation for for some very important NGOs whether it comes to human rights environment LGBT quite uh, quite a difficult situation so this is definitely a story which is only beginning but which we're going to follow up on and also uh, I would say this is worth mentioning that um, just now um, the, the network of civil society organizations in Poland have been appealing to the government for more transparency and more clarity over how EU recovery, and not only EU, but overall the recovery uh, funds package um, in Poland is being distributed, on what terms, uh, to what organizations, and so on. So this is also something to follow. Okay, thank you, Marisha, for uh, joining us on, on this week's podcast, and we'll be back after the break. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Visegrad Insight Podcast. If you're enjoying, do subscribe, share it with your network, and also give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Also, a special announcement to our subscribers. Subscribers this week should check their mailboxes 
as we have been organizing an exclusive meeting just for them uh, with experts on Russian and Czech affairs. So if you haven't been a subscriber yet and you want to take part, of course, you can join by subscribing at visegradinsight.eu. Now, welcome to this podcast. Already announced at the very beginning, Antonia Carparelli, a professor of European Studies at the University of Rome and a former um, expert of the European Commission. Now, Antonia, I wanted to begin by uh, by asking you to describe the moods about uh, about Europe in Italy. I think Italy over the especially last very difficult year, uh, two years, have been undergoing very emotional uh, change uh, regarding Europe. And I would like you to unpack it, to describe it. Well, thank you for this question, because uh, we have been following the public opinion in Italy with a lot of concern for several years. After It was after the big uh, recession, uh, then there was a, a major change with uh, the Italian public opinion moving rapidly toward uh, Euroscepticism. You should know that uh, Italy had a long tradition of pro-European, strongly pro-European country. And we saw really a, a tectonic shift at that moment where a majority of the public opinion became uh, Eurosceptical. Uh, and it was uh, really in relation to the perception that uh, the uh, northern countries the, and Germany in particular did not understand the troubles that actually we had imported a recession which was uh, made in Europe. That was the, the, the major concern. Then the the situation started to improve after the central bank uh, change, the, whatever it takes. So the perception that there was a, a different attitude towards uh, towards the, the problem of southern countries and the diagnosis of the crisis, which led to a gradual improvement, but still with uh, in several crises combining to reinforce the eurosceptical parts. And as you know, the the, the reinforcement of uh, Eurosceptical parties, uh, populist parties. And this was more or less the situation in which we were uh, at the moment when the pandemic uh, came. And uh, even there, the initial reaction of the European Union reinforced dramatically Euro populism, Euroscepticism. Then there was a major change, next generation EU, and you could visibly see in the in the polls, in the Eurobarometers interviews, but also in the polls, a complete uh, change of attitude. Uh, again, in this moment, we are, okay, I would not say that Italy has been transformed in a pro-European or a critically pro-European countries. There are still a majority of citizens which would like to see a different uh, Europe, but at least we have seen the uh, image of Europe changing substantially after the reaction to the pandemic, which was the, uh, which gave a strong perception of solidarity. Thank you. Uh, this is really interesting development and as we are observing Italy closely also uh, in, in the countries from Central Europe, I wanted to ask you another question related uh, to, to, you know, in a way the same boat we are in, the European Union. Um, we are in the week when 
there will be major announcements uh, related to Europe Day on, on the, and related to the conference on the future of Europe. Yeah. So we will have public statements, political statements, and the road begins now for over a year of discussions, consultations, the process that is initiating, uh, that is leading somewhere. We'll discuss where it may lead, but I wanted you to to describe as a former commissioner, a member of the commission, uh, you know, what do you think is the expectation? What's, what is behind this process? What is the desired outcome? I think there are different desires and different wishes about the outcome. What I can say is that uh, it comes at a very timely moment. Uh, we all believe, I think, where there is a majority of people and analysts and uh, politicians who believe that Europe will not be the same after the pandemic. Our economies, our societies will not be the same after the pandemic. We are not only because uh, health becomes such a central concern and a priority uh, and it is perceived as a global challenge after the pandemic. So there is a need to act together. And this happens in the middle of different uh, uh, of various challenges. Let's say the, the technological challenge, the climate change challenge, uh, the demographic challenge. I mean, all of them which combine to create a big risk of uh, developing inequality. We have seen inequality within countries and across countries increasing over the last years. And uh, all these uh, different challenges tend to uh, exacerbate inequality. And together with this big discontent in the middle class, in the uh, bottom class, and we have to be able to uh, answer this question. There is a big demand for change. There are fears, at the same time, a big demand for changes. Uh, if you look at, uh, there is an interesting Eurobarometer into, uh, poll, which asks uh, how, um, whether people are pro-Europe or against Europe. And, and you have uh, a majority of people, 77% in this moment of people who say they are pro-European, which is a huge amount. But if you look inside this 77%, you see that 44% are in favor, not as it is, but of a better Europe. And you add to it this, uh, the, if you look at the other, the remaining part uh, in the 27% uh, uh, percentage, you have 22% of people who would be ready to become pro-European if there were radical changes. So what you have is an overwhelming majority of people who ask for a change in Europe. Now, it is important to have this conference because we, we have to understand in which direction Europe should evolve to answer this challenge and what are the expectations of those people who, uh, who demand for a big change. Uh, it is a, an unprecedented exercise for many, uh, in, in many respects uh, because in the past we had for, uh, plenty of citizen dialogue, we have Eurobarometer, of course, so we have a constant uh, uh, so um, 
attempt to, to, to grasp what is the European public opinion. But there was never a feedback process. So now we have this uh, big platform, which is multilingual platform, uh, with a commitment to draw from this platform the input which come from the citizens and to prepare feedback, which will have to feed into a structure, the plenary, which will also produce a report on what are uh, citizen expectations. It is a very open exercise. And the the outcome, in my view, will be very much, will depend very much on the mobilization that we, that we all together managed to to uh, to create around this exercise. Uh, we have seen, I mean, we have seen also the, the the movement in the turnout in the European election. So for the first time, we had the majority of the electorate voting for the European election. So all this together, and also always Eurobarometer showed that there is an increasing interest in European affairs. Over the last 10 years, there has been a steady increase of interest in European affairs. So all this seems to, um, to, to, to uh, pave the way for an, an interesting and important exercise leading to, to uh, a different uh, attitude towards the involvement of citizens' involvement. Antonia, thank you for this explainer, and it sets really the stage for what we um, what we are to um, to discuss further. And my next question relates to the ambition that we are actually joining uh, with with the Fondazione Giuseppe Di Vanio and many others in in uh, Europe, in Central Europe in particular. Uh, in a structured exercise, we are good at. Uh, you would say you you are no. We are known for the so-called scenario development or foresight exercises on behalf of the civil society, and we are plugging into this effort on the future of Co- uh, future of Europe conference uh, with a special project developed uh, also with the European Commission uh, support where we will be asking questions. Uh, Central European civil society. Uh, will be answering or trying to to you know give their feedback also and then we will we have a design for that we will structure it in form of scenarios later to make it more coherent but also to to show that there are different exactly as you said there are some people who demand radical change and maybe have different ideas about this change now my question to you is having such um, such an audience also a Visegrad inside audience and and perhaps readers of the interview later. Uh, what would be your questions to the civil society in Central Europe about the future of Europe conference? What would you direct them to, to, you know, to answer? First of all, I would, I would like to, to say that one big expectation for me from this exercise is the capacity to identify the dividing line. Because what we have seen in Europe over the last years, creating more and more lines of division between small countries and big countries, between north can- northern countries and southern countries, between West countries and Central and Eastern countries. Uh, I-, I would say that probably this is the most worrying divide between uh, 
uh, Western, well, all of them are boring, to, to be honest, and you don't, don't know which one will be maybe more threatening for the survival of the European Union. But what I think is the main question to ask uh, people, in which respect they feel that their voices are not heard in Europe? What are the issues on which people feel that they are, let's say, uh, be kind of be citizens, not a citizen. <laughs> but, so this is the feeling that the Italians had uh, during the Great Recession. That the Italian had uh, in March 2020 when the the Sun Declaration showed that uh, Europe will not have enough solidarity. And this is the feeling I, I perceive in several Eastern countries when it, when it talks about migration, when it talks about values of the European Union, that they are not considered citizens of the uh, of the, at the same level as other citizens and this is the most uh, threatening issue so i would ask them first of all in which respect you feel that your voice is not heard enough that your concern is not understood and uh, on which issues you would like to have more voice uh, we know something always from the eurobarometers but still too little in my view so we have missed to to get at the core of citizens' concern, of citizens' fears. That's a very good point to start. And definitely we will take this uh, challenge, we will ask them. But uh, let me ask you this, uh, this question. Should the citizens overall, which I don't believe this is very realistic, but still um, uh, citizens or, or uh, representatives of the civil society that take part in this exercise on the future of Europe, start to voice those radical challenges, there is a political responsibility that comes with that, don't you think? I, I, I think I'm only uh, concerned, let's say, about uh, that that this process opens doors, of course, for those who wish for Europe all all the well, a united Europe. But there is also a lot of nationalism in across different societies, and this platforms also enables them to speak up and to amplify their voices. I'm not afraid of uh, uh, having the citizens spelling out their concern. Uh, the process is engineered in a manner which is up to the representative democracy to pull up. So my the way I see it, that having a clear view or what are the deepest fears of, the, of people, you will give an additional tools to the, the represent the politicians of the, the political world to address those concerns. And um, uh, it is not a solution to uh, pretend that their concerns are not there, that their values are, are the same, that uh, every... No, we, we, um, uh, we have to go at the core of the... Uh, even of what people... Identity problems that people may have. And because I... And when I when we define this uh, exercise, I, I I like to say it's a, an exercise in deliberative democracies more than in participatory democracy. Deliberative democracy is about discussing, about uh, giving the possibility to people to argue, to to convince each other. And when I'm, I well, I, I'm quite uh, uh, so. <laughs> 
optimistic about the rationality, about the capacity to use rational arguments. When people say, how we fight migration, and you come, of course, this is a highly dividing issue, but when you start to reflect on the fact, on the cost that would be the, the impossibility for individual countries to protect themselves on their own from, uh, from flows of migration which are determined by wars, which are determined by, then you, you can use rational uh, elements to convince people that uh, the, uh, being together, addressing together these challenges is the best way out. So when I, I insist on the idea of deliberative democracy, because it, it is not just an exercise of uh, uh, externalizing the fears, externalizing the, 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 the rage, the discontent, but it's an opportunity to create fora for discussion, to bring people to understand that, I mean, if, if I, I can apply to the concern in Italy, for example, the, the problem with the euro, no? that when people became against the euro. And then if you start to explain what does it imply going back to a single to uh, to the lira or to a, uh, to a national currency in a world where you have lost the possibility to control uh, capital movements in a world in which you cannot go to protectionism and and have the illusion to to become richer so you have to use all those arguments throughout the the, the discourse the public discourse and my expectation is that out of this exercise is not we don't just get the, the, a picture of people who are more nationalists, but the possibility to convince people among the historical reason, the profound historical reason why we ought to be together. Thank you. This is, uh, this is reassuring. But last question, what if the process itself um, will bring a very strong recommendation and voice to open up treaties and change European treaties again. Do you believe this this process might have that potential? Well, let's let's be uh, honest. You have followed like me, like everybody who follows you, the, the debate, the also the uh, contrast between uh, institutions, and you also know that the declaration which was released in March doesn't clearly say points to the fact that it's not. Uh, to lead to treaty changes. But uh, Europe is a, a history of surprises, as you know. Amid, uh, in the middle of crisis, in the middle of major challenge, new solutions come out. Uh, with, uh, so I, I, would, I think that because we are uh, navigating in uncharted waters uh, and uh, the Europe will be a different thing out of, uh, after this crisis, the, this may be an exercise quite, this will end up being an exercise quite open. And if there is a need to, to change the treaty, this will be done. It, in the middle of the Great Recession, when everybody said, no, no treaty change, they introduced a, a change to the Article 136, allowing to save uh, insolvent uh, governments. So uh, this is an example of uh, how things may change under the pressure of events and also under the pressure of public opinion. And, uh, Thank you, Antonia. Uh, lovely, lovely to have you with us at the Visegrad Insight podcast. Uh, and, and thank you for sharing your, uh, your thoughts, your reflections and analysis on, um, on the future of Europe conference. Thank you for the interview and uh, all the best for the, for the continuation. Thank you.